You're listening to the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast with Terrence Murphy, where we cover sales, investing, and entrepreneurship with an emphasis on real estate. Each podcast, Terrence and his guests will bring you informative and inspiring information within the real estate industry. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. I have some guests today that I'm excited to announce, but I want to do my quick quote that I have most of the time. So this one's really short. It's just action beats reaction. And so really just focusing on taking action versus waiting on it to happen. And we always talk about that with our team, like a P&L is very reactive, but how can we get out in front of it with a scorecard and, and take action up front? So this is the first time on the Real Estate Entrepreneur podcast. We have two guests today. I'm going to introduce both in separate introductions. Josh Welsh is the founder and CEO of Three Pillars Capital Group, a privately held real estate equity firm in Houston, Texas. The firm specializes in value-add multifamily ownership and operation of a portfolio valued at $250 million across 2,000 units. Mark Schuler, The Schuler Group Real Equity is a real estate investment firm that acquires, develops, and manages urban housing communities in and around the metropolitan Puget Sound in Houston, Texas. Led by an industry veteran, Mark Schuler has a broad experience in architecture, real estate development, investment acquisitions, 1031 exchanges, and investment property consultant. Welcome to the show today. Thanks, Terrence. Yeah, man, real quick, I'll let you guys go separately, but just tell me your story in a couple minutes, who you are, you know, what you're about, and then how you became a real estate entrepreneur. So I'll just, as I throw out these questions, I'll let y'all just choose who goes first and and we'll just, you know, keep it organic. Sure. I guess I'll kick things off. Hi, guys. I'm Josh. I am the CEO and co-founder of Three Pillars Capital Group. We're a private real estate equity firm here in Houston. And our focus is purely on class B and C value add multifamily. But, you know, I got my start in real estate, not, you know, I didn't go to school to study business. I didn't go to school with a real estate focus. I actually have an engineering background. And so, you know, I really thought I was going to be designing, you know, computer systems, rockets. I, I was a I worked for Lockheed Martin as a basically a rocket scientist. So I know there's a lot of jokes that come with that. <laughs> but, you know, this business isn't rocket science, you know. But so I did that for quite a while. And you know, I really honed my skills and just analyzing data, big data sets, looking at a problem from many different angles. And that's really what real estate's all about. I mean, it looks very simple on the surface and, and buying a rental property or an apartment, you know, on paper, it seems very simple, but there's a lot of moving parts. And there's always data that you can analyze to, to make it work and perform better. And so that's really where I got my interest in, in, you know, doing not only real estate, but multifamily. So I kind of, while I was working corporate, I was building a single family portfolio in Florida. And it was getting to the point where, you know, I wanted to really scale into something large and great more grand than what that was. And I was kind of hitting a glass ceiling, if you will. And so I decided to go into multifamily because the theory is, and it's still true that, you know, you get economies of scale instead of having to fix, you know, a hundred houses, roofs on a hundred houses, you only have to fix a roof on, you know, a couple of buildings and it's a hundred units, right? Same thing. So you get economies of scale, but it's also a really way to, a great way to kind of scale a business and, and really form a business around real estate, which is exactly what I wanted to do. So, you know, fast forward, you know, we've been at three pillars has been in business for about four years. You know, we're 250 million in assets, uh, just under 2,000 units. And, you know, Mark's been a great, great part of that. He's been a GP on several of our deals, very active, very has his own set of skills and expertise and experience. So I'll let him speak on his story. Yeah, I am Mark Schuller and I 
run my own private equity firm out of Seattle, but I stopped doing deals here about three years ago because the marketplace is just too insane. Went to Houston several times on reconnaissance missions, just like that market a lot. And on one of those missions, Josh and I hooked up and started doing deals together. My background is I'm a practicing architect and have been in business for 35 years doing that design, probably 500 buildings that I've executed over that career. And about 10, 15 years ago, just really started getting interested in the deal-making side of things. Architecture, while well, architects love to think that they're the center of the universe, the reality is that architects come in about two-thirds of the way in a real estate timeline. There's been a lot of deal making that goes on prior to the engagement of a guy with my skill sets. So I just really got much more interested in the deal making, the creativity involved in it, and wanted to pursue that. So I went to, I did go to business school to get an advanced degree in commercial real estate development. Got that from the University of Washington. And then also, my family background is we're all in commercial real estate one way or another. I had five family members who were either commercial brokers or developers or analysts. My kid brother is one of the foremost authorities on real estate taxation in the country. So it's just kind of in the family DNA. And yeah, just did my first deal probably eight years ago, a little 31 unit, and have just been doing deals ever since. I've done big deals. I've done small deals. Just kind of a deal junkie. And yeah, like I said, I, I met up with Josh about five years ago, and we have very similar temperaments and very similar goals in the business. But also, we look at the very similar business model, which is a deep value ad play. No, that's good. And I've just been the only guy I've ever met that kind of had the same sensibilities about this business as I do. So, yeah, we're doing deals good. No, I love it, man. And we're going to dive into that, man. We we'll appreciate y'all's just kind of background and. Obviously, you guys coming together have formed an amazing team, and you know I've been keeping up with you, so congrats on that. Josh, I want to ask you this question, so I'll kind of volley them back and forth specifically. But you said you were building a single-family rental portfolio. When did you feel like it was time to transition into multifamily? You kind of touched on it, but I want to dive into that because we have a lot of single-family rental, duplex, townhome investors who are trying to transition into multifamily, and they feel stuck. So let's talk about that. I think for me, it was, I, I pretty much had learned, I mean, there's always something to learn, right? But I had, I felt like I had kind of was, was maxing out and coasting a little bit, you know, with the, you know, with the, the buy, renovate, refinance model, but, you know, bigger pockets folks, you know what I'm talking about. The Burr method or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd done that several deals and, and it just, I guess, really, to be honest, it wasn't fast enough. I mean, it was taking too long. It was too slow. And, you know, I was trying to do something that I could, you know, I'm setting up, you know, something that I uh, not only retire early on, but, you know, set up, you know, generational wealth, as they call it, for family and stuff. So uh, it just, kind of the light bulb just went off. I'm like, okay, if I really want to do this, I need to figure out how to scale into something bigger. And the, and the, the most efficient way that I understood and had read about was multifamily. Because you need, like I said earlier, you just, it's, it's one transaction to get into what would equate to maybe a hundred transactions with single family, right? It's just a lot quicker. And so really it's, it's kind of just a lot of things coming together, but really it was just, it was the speed. It wasn't fast enough for me, you know, and a lot of, and a lot of guys have done quite well with single family, but you know, I, I, I can tell you right now, if I would have stuck with trying to grow a portfolio of single family homes, I wouldn't be at 250 million in assets in four years. Wow. That's awesome, bro. And you said 2000 units. Yeah. 2000 yeah. units. 
Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, because I think the and 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 let's let's dive into this. So as you've moved into multifamily, obviously Mark's background is an architect. You as an investor, you came together. Why did you choose class B and C? Do you feel like that's a very competitive, saturated space? So like let's talk about the value add and what what did First off, let's talk about being like, how do you rank a property? Because some people I want to always bring it to basic terms. Now, I know we can start talking shops, start talking cap rates, equity multiples, and we'll get into that. But let's just go back to how do you rate your classes? What is an A class, B class, C class, whatever? Let's talk about that. What is that in the multifamily space? Well, you know, A class is, I mean, a lot of different ways to sort of quantify or classify deals, but you know, the easiest way that I'm aware of is just kind of age of asset and amenities. You know, 10 years and you know, younger is typically A A minus stuff with a lot of lifestyle amenities that is being are being designed into it now. B class is going to be a little bit older, maybe all the way back into the 80s. And then C class is going to be, you know, pre-1980. And I've legitimately bought D and F class buildings before and renovated them. So it has a lot to do with the design of the structure, which is near and dear to my heart because we design a lot of these buildings, but it's certainly also got a lot of maybe getting into the weeds too much, but you know, the, the way we design these structures now, there's a lot of life safety embedded into these designs. So certainly newer product is going to be a lot safer from a exiting and fire and life safety point of view than an older product. Mm-hmm. 60s vintage stuff can be tinderboxes, candidly. And, you know, I've bought a lot of that, but the way exiting works on those is just a much different animal than a newer building. So you're not going to find the amenities in the C-class product that you find in the A-class product. So that's the easiest way to look at it. The interesting thing about A-class, another way to look at it is from, you know, the cap rates on the product. Uh, A-class product is going to have a much lower cap rate and it's going to be more institutionally oriented than the C and D class product. You know, the older the class of the building, the the higher the class, the cap rate. It's just going to be a riskier proposition. That said, cap rates have been compressing for several years nationwide. So everything's trading around a five cap rate. So we expect that to kind of change here in the next couple of years. But right now, that's kind of what I'm seeing. I'm sure Josh could say the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I'll just add the, the, the whole reason why, you know, we, we focus on B and C is because, you know, the, the thesis for us is, you know, when, when times get tough and you enter a recessionary environment, people lose jobs, they get downgraded, right? They lose income. They're not going to just go live under a bridge. And most people don't want to just move back in with mom, right? So they'll most likely just downgrade their lifestyle and move back into a more, you know, a cheaper apartment, which, you know, is what we would have. So, and we've, we've actually seen this you know, kind of in a, in a micro sense in the past couple of years, you know, especially, especially with COVID, you know, people, some people lost work. We, we actually had an uptick in our occupancy. So we, it's basically, it's, it's a buoy, right? It, it, it basically will catch people that are downgrading and, and waiting for things to get better. So in good times, bad times, we're always occupied. And so I'd rather be in something like that than something like class A where maybe the rents are higher, but at the same time, they're more expensive assets. You almost have to bank on the appreciation of the market for you to exit, right? Because it can be so volatile with the occupancy. When oh, you have a dip. Yeah. very, yeah. very volatile. So, man, that's good. That's great feedback. Yeah, the, yeah if no. I could add one point to that is the yeah. theory with C class 
deals and it being recession proof is that in hard times, A class flees to B class, B class flees to C class. So by buying C class deals, I mean, everybody's swinging our way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've owned a couple of deals here in Seattle yet, and I have been 95% and higher occupancy throughout the entire pandemic. I just several, several times I've been 100% occupied with a wait list. So, and these are market rate units. I mean, and they're really nicely done. So, you know, that's why we like it. Just seems to be a pretty good return with downgraded risk profile. So, that's good, man. Yeah, I'm excited to keep diving into that. And I think to summarize, class A, B, and C, class A is 10 years or, or newer with amenities and then obviously, you know, lower cap. B would be, I guess, the 2000s, you know, early 2000s or, to the 1980s and then everything C class would be pre 1980s. So, cause people are always asking. And that's me, a pretty good assessment. That's pretty, you can yeah, argue the nuances sure. of that, but uh, yeah, it's, that sounds about right. Yeah. That gives you a framework. Yeah. So I, one of the things I want to dive into now is when you look at a project, cause like you said, it's so competitive, but there's so many apartments for sale. You know, like when you are looking at single family rentals, they call it the 1% ratio. So if I if I pay a million dollars for something, I need to be at $10,000 a month in gross rent to even consider even looking at this, right? What are those kind of top five to 10 things that you guys look at as kind of a, a you know, back of the napkin when I'm looking at a multifamily deal before I dive deep into it? What, what would that checklist be and kind of walk me through y'all's mind and thought process when you're evaluating a deal? I mean, we take we basically take a top-down approach. So, you know, we're focused in Houston. Houston's a great market. It's just a fantastic market to be in multifamily. We basically will look at, let's take Houston as an example. We'll look at the pockets that we want to be in around. Houston's a massive city. It's, it's the, you know, second largest in the country. Third largest, sorry. So we'll look at the pockets that we want to be in. And from there, we will basically kind of shake the tree. We have our own acquisitions department that basically looks for off-market deals. And then once we get a handful of deals, we underwrite them in that market. And then from there, we go even further and we find a deal that we like. We say, okay, well, is this an area that's next to, you know, dense employment centers? Is there a lot of traffic that will go through here? It's not, we want to make sure we're not buying something that's way out in the boonies because, you know, you need that density and you need people that can work so they can pay you, right? I mean, it's just common sense. We look at that and then we'll look at what are the comps in the area? Am I buying the most expensive asset in the area, you know, and if, if I am, you know, are the rent, are, are the rents justified to get me to, to, to make up that pain, that expensive price tag. So we'll basically definitely heavily shop the comps and really it starts with the rents, not so much the purchase price, the property, because that's drive That drives everything. That's, that's your revenue. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll look at the current rents, the property, and then we'll look at the comps and say, okay, well, for one bedroom, if the average comp, for the same thing as getting $750 a unit and the current average rent here is 700. Then if I actually go in and do, do a bunch of remodeling and update the units, I could probably get closer to not only 750, but probably 800 or 825, right? And then we have another comp set we'll shop for post renovations and see that we're in line with what our targets are going to be. And then from that, if, if we can justify getting basically a eight to 10% cash on cash and close to a 20 IRR, over five years, then we've got a winner because the, the deal metrics do drive whether it's a good deal or not, right? I mean, our investors, you know, they definitely have a certain appetite and we want to deliver on that. But yeah, I guess long story short, it's, it's kind of a top-down approach, but we're also, once we get down in the weeds, 
we really want to make sure that the data is there to support getting our performer. Love it. I can add a couple of points to that. Because we do this on a repetitive basis and we have a specific deal type that we look for, we really don't even need to get the financials from the seller to allow us to do a, a quick backing envelope analysis. I mean, we know what, because of the rent comp survey that Josh was just describing, we have a pretty good handle on what the units will rent for. And then we also know what we can operate the property for with our personnel on the property. So we kind of know what the expense load is. So when you mm-hmm. know both what the income is and what the expenses are, you can start working into the cash and cash and IRR that Josh was just describing about. And you can weed out a lot of wheat from the chaff pretty quickly that way. And mm-hmm. you can focus on the deals that really intrigue you and then get deeper, get actual financials from the owner and start a more serious underwriting process. But we're able to kind of you know, really filter through a lot of deals pretty quickly and just find the ones that we like. I love it. So when we're talking about underwriting, you know, because I actually just closed up, I was a GPE on a co-GPE on a deal in Orlando. We closed this week. It's a $35 million deal. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm excited, man. So, So it was a good deal. And we can throw around these things, but I'm always just trying to bring it back for our audience. I never want them to feel like we're talking over their head, right? Right. We want to talk high level, but we want to make it relatable. So when we talk about underwriting, when you first tell me what is underwriting and then how do you guys underwrite in your process? Do you have a custom spreadsheet that you do? Do you have certain bankers and lenders that like what's your underwriting process once you once you say, hey, we've kind of got it down to three to four deals that we're really interested in? How do how would you underwrite? What's that process? Sure. Mark, you want to take the lead or you want me to Yeah, go I'll take the lead. You know, okay. it's a loaded question. That, that <laughs> is the secret sauce, right? Yeah. Yep. If you don't know how to underwrite a deal, you need to figure it out. It is an art and a science. Mm-hmm. It, there is a lot of empiricism. And this is what I love about multifamily that I, I never found in single family. I want to go back to something we talked about earlier single family. To me, is just betting on the company. It is speculation. It is not investing. Mm-hmm. You're just hoping that you can sell your product for a higher price than what you what your basis is in it. And you never know. Whereas multifamily is based, uh, it's kind of like, you know, a price to earnings ratio in the stock market. It's based on a multiple of cash flow, specifically the net operating income. And so you, you, can develop these elaborate underwriting templates. Excel is, I don't know how anybody did multifamily prior to Excel, (laughs) but you need to have some, your bona fides in Excel to be able to do this business. And there are a lot of courses out there you can take, and there's a lot of templates online and a lot of templates you can buy, but you've got to just bone up on your Excel skills. But candidly, you know, what you need to be aware of in Excel is it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, you need to know how to input the, the data so that you get real answers on the back end. And mm. that just comes with experience. Yeah. But to specifically address your question, Terrence, is it is a, a big math problem. Multifamily is a huge math problem. And, mm. you know, it, and so that's what I love about it because you can filter out all the emotions and just focus on the data sets. And um, it's very empirical and the numbers tell a story. 
You know, they, they don't lie. And so, Josh, why don't you uh, sure. take it from there and add No, I, I think that is really great what you mentioned. I'll, I'll just add that, you know, if, if, if I could just paint a picture in a perfect world, you, you had a property and you had your rent roll and your T12 and you could operate it exactly the same way as that owner. And you knew that everything that was being presented to you was 100% factual and there was no variation. Oh, Underwriting would be extremely easy. That happens every day, by the way. Yeah, right? <laughs> Underwriting would be the easiest thing in the world because you can literally just plug. Once your spreadsheet's set up, all you got to do is plug in numbers, right? It's just it's the, the, the way the math works out with NOI and the loan, right? So that part of it is really not that hard. Yeah, there's some concepts to understand to get your head around it. But once you get it, then it, then it comes down to actually what data are you putting into your model? Like Mark said, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you're just shoving numbers in your model, but you don't really know how those numbers got there or you don't have experience in that market or anybody else that can speak to those numbers to say, yeah, these are good or, Hey, these are garbage or these are fluffed. And it happens all the time. I, I've seen so many underwriting models where I know that there's some loosey goosey. Oh, these, these numbers seem too good to be true type of stuff going on. You can get burned, right? Because it's garbage in garbage out. So really that's kind of where it comes back to at this stage in the game for us, you've been doing this so, so long that, you know, I can look at a T12 and say, okay, they're, you know, their spend on their maintenance, it seems a little too lean for a property this, this age, you know, that we need to beef this up 5% to plug in our model, make sure that we're not taking over something that's too overly optimistic. And then from there, once we, once we're confident on the, the input data set, then we look at pro form, which is okay. Now that we're, now that we've taken over, what's going to happen for the next number of years, right? How are we going to make this asset more lean? And again, that goes back to the empirical data set. Like you can, you can really only know that after having some time in place and some experience knowing that, okay, if I take this asset over, maybe he had an RM budget that was, you know, 500 a door, but I know I can operate in this market for 300 a door because I have already, because I have other assets I've done this with. And that's when you can really get some great, some great deals and some great returns to your investors is, is once you have some of that time in place and really knowing how to, filter out the garbage data and having a true pro forma. That's good, man. So what would you say when, when, when you're taking deals to investors, right? You know, obviously with your capital stack, what do you feel like right now in the current market investors are looking for? Cause you have the equity multiple, you have the internal rate of return. What's kind of those three to four metrics that you say, okay, I can, I feel good about this deal. I can bring investors in. What, what, what would that be? Like cash on cash. Yeah. So what's like, what's the bare minimal though? Like, Hey man, I won't, I won't invest in this deal unless it's 10% cash on cash, 20%, you know, internal rate of return, two X multiple. Like, what do you feel like those numbers? Is there any kind of magic? You know, Terrence, that's a really nuanced question. Probably more so than you think. For sure. The marketplace, actually the marketplace of available deals out there drives a lot of this. And so what you have to be thinking about is the opportunity cost of your money. And you have to think about the opportunity cost of your, your investors' money. They have an array of product that they can invest in. Other deals, the stock market, you know, futures, commodities, equity, you, know, you name it. So you have to be competitive in the marketplace and offer up return profiles that are going to make it compelling for people who want to invest in your deal as opposed to a different. It's, it's mm-hmm. that simple. And it's supply and demand, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand of the marketplace right there. Correct. So what we have found is you have to have a certain threshold to the deals. 8% cash and cash is like the bare minimum in the marketplace right now. If you're not, if you're doing a 5% deal, you're never going to fund it. It's that simple. So we got to get to 8% and 
candidly, we like to be at about a 20% IRR and above just to make it a very competitive and compelling story for our investors over a long-term home because you're hanging on to their money for, in our case, five years. Yep. And the cost of hanging on to that money because of the illiquidity nature of the investment, you've got to have some pop on the back end that makes people want to invest in it. The big difference between real estate and the stock market is the liquidity of your capital. Correct. And if you can, you know, if I'm going to tie up my capital for five years, we have a mechanism that allows us to give back a bunch of capital halfway through the deal. But if you're going to be tying your capital up, there's the cost associated with that. And I better be getting a return on the, you know, for that illiquidity. So it's just kind of common sense. Like I said, underwriting is art and science, and this is the art part of it. You know, you just have to understand your the investor psychology. No, that's good. So eight percent cash on cash, twenty percent projected. You know, return. I would say projected. What would that equity multiple be at minimum? One, one and a quarter, one and a half. Oh, no, two. Two. Two, two X, X two X's, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 basically the mantra and what we go for is if I can double your money in five years, that I've got a good deal. That's the, you know, and also if I can just add, you know, the risk component is also, if not, it's probably more important than returns are great saying, Hey, I'm going to get 20 IRR and eight cash on cash. That's fine. But what kind of risk are you taking with other people's money? Right. And so that's why our first, really our first goal in every one of these deals is how can I get capital back to investors as quickly as possible? And Mark mentioned, at two years, there's a mechanism to return capital. That mechanism is refinance. And the only way that you can really get a refinance to work in your favor is if you're adding some kind of value. Yep. Yeah, you can, you can buy an asset, do nothing to it, have the market appreciate and refinance because the value has naturally gone up the market. But the way that we like to do it is, again, it goes back to why we're in B and C. We're forcing value to the property by updating it, modernizing it, making it make more rent, basically. And when you force, no matter if the market sideways, even going down, if you're forcing value like that because you're doing so much work and you're you're increasing the actual value of the property with your own two hands, then you're basically going to be able to get a refi no matter what. And so we target roughly 50 to 70% cash out refis at year two. So we've actually done that on three projects in the past six months that are about at the two-year mark for us, where we basically renovated the entire property. All the rents have increased 15 to 20%, sometimes more. And those investors are all sitting close to 100% return of capital through distributions and the refinance events. So basically at the end of year two, they're in the deal as they were from day one from an equity percentage, but all their capital has been returned. So no matter what happens, the property could, we could completely, you know, go, go bust tomorrow. And they got their money back. Right. Nothing, there's really nothing that bad that could happen. Now it's all gravy for them. So they're now they're, they can recycle their capital, use it for deal. So that's really, I think, one of the other things that sets us apart is, you know, we're so focused on that. And we, we can only achieve those refi cash outs if we're actually forcing the value by doing this work in-house. So I just wanted to add that point. No, that's great. I actually have that as one of my points, which is forced equity is kind of what we call it, but you hit it. So no, that's really good, man. And I think the, I think the other thing in the multifamily space, if you see those guys and they don't last long in this space, but they refi and get their investors out and keep the deal. And it's like, man, you got to play the long game where you refi and keep them in because then the, those are your partners and you want them on the next deal. Right. So obviously you guys refi and let their investors stay in the deal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. We, you know, we always give, uh, you know, sometimes there's, there's liquidity events that happen. 
you know, we do offer buyouts in some of our deals if investors, you know, need their capital back, we will offer that. So it is a case by case. But yeah, I mean, if, if we want people to be repeat investors with us. And so, you know, we, we want them to basically, we want them to have that success story to tell their friends because that's how we grow our network, right? If they get, if they got all their money back in two years and they've made these great returns and now they're in the deal for free, they're going to be inclined to tell their friends, why wouldn't they, right? It's such a great thing. So it would only, I mean, we'd only be doing ourselves a disservice if we were to do what you're describing. Love it. Love it. So when we talk about cap rate, the cap rates right now, how are you guys setting up your capital stack from a loan to value standpoint with the compressed cap rates and still making, hitting these kind of returns? Gosh, take point on that one. Yeah, uh, it's it's tough. Look, I mean, it's, it is not easy. I mean, there's so much money chasing deals. I mean, with rates, you know, for over a decade now, longer being so low, money is trying to find a home. And that's why you're seeing these deals constantly, money's chasing these deals. And the market continues to push prices up, which naturally pushes cap rates down. So, you know, from us, it's just, it's more of a, we have to be very diligent and steadfast and not just jumping at a deal to do a deal. And I think it's, I've seen a lot of that recently. A lot of owner operators are like, hey, I haven't done a deal in a while. I need to do something, right? Which I get it. I get the pressure. I understand it. But doing a deal for the sake of doing a deal, that's the quickest way to get burned and lose your entire reputation. So, you know, if if I have to go through twice as many deals to find one that makes sense and wait a little bit longer, I'll, I'll do that. Because all it takes is one bad deal, as, as Mark says all the time, you're only good at, as good as your last deal, right? So if I have a, yep. if I have a, a blow up deal that doesn't go well, then you think I'm going to be able to do more deals in the future? Probably not. So you have to be really diligent. Yeah. No, that's good. And I could write a dissertation about what Josh. Yeah. So loan to value though, you guys are just 70, you know, 70, 30, you're bringing 30% equity. That's kind of what you're setting up structure wise on these class B and C. Yeah. I mean, it's 70 to 80% depending on the lender. Mm-hmm. And I will say, you know, the debt market has come back quite a bit since since COVID. It took a little bit of a lot. A lot of players were out sitting on the sidelines while COVID was doing its thing. So it was tough to get, you know, loans for a while. But everything's come back, and rates are actually better than they were before COVID. On some, you know, on one of the, the deal that we just closed on last week, a, close to a fifty million dollar deal, the rate was, uh, you know, three seven five. Wow, which was incredible. It was That's incredible. not bridge money. It's bridge money. So that actually includes renovation money that we draw on as we complete the work. I hadn't seen that as the lowest rate we'd seen since we've been in the business. So um, uh, two years ago, that was probably over 5%. 5%. That was 5% plus two years ago. Well, that was leading me right to my next thing. I wanted to talk about it. So you guys just closed a $50 million deal, 384 units and, you know, deep value add. So let's walk through that deal. If you were explaining it to a novice investor, you know, just kind of give me the story around that deal, man. I want to you know, put some energy towards it. Sure. So we we purchased this asset last week. It's a 384 unit deal. It's a definitely an older product, you know, not, not ancient, right? It's built in the seventies. And the whole story behind it was, you know, the owners had hired a third-party management company and we've seen this so many times. Third-party managers very rarely work out well because at the end of the day, they're, they're motivated, they're fee-based, right? So as long as they're generating enough income for you to make their fee, they're happy, right? Because they're making money on the top line, but they're not really focused on the bottom line, which is where so much of the NOI generation can come from. So they'll pass on expenses that are bloated or just hire contractors all over the place that are super expensive without shopping or being competitive 
getting competitive bids on things and just completely blow up your NOI, right? And so basically what was happening is the manager, the manager that they had hired was just kind of, they were kind of middle par for the course. They weren't really improving the value of the property. And so, and they weren't a vertically integrated company like we are. So they couldn't really control too many levers or turn many knobs to fix it, right? They could fire them and hire somebody else. But I've also seen that too. You, one property could go through three different management companies in a year and it's just disastrous because it's too much turnover. Residents don't know who to talk to. It's crazy. So we're basically taking over this asset from basically undermanaged, mismanaged company that wasn't, didn't have also ran out of money to do the renovation works, renovation work on the interiors. So they spent a bunch of money on the outside, which is great. Leasing office is beautiful, right? The grounds look great, but they didn't modernize the units. And so if you're a, if you're a resident and you're looking to, you know, why are you really going to pay an extra hundred dollars a month per unit because the leasing office was remodeled? No. Probably not, right? If, if, if your unit looks the same as the guy next door, but they have a nicer leasing office, it, it might get you in the door, but it's not going to convince you to, to rent from them, right? So our, so our goal with this project is to go in and, and update the units like we do on all of our projects, which is like a luxury class A look. And we have granite counters, you know, designer lighting, uh, travertine tile in the bathroom. It's, it's really gorgeous remodels that we do. And actually forced, again, forcing the value into the property through the mechanisms that actually drive value, which is increased rent. So our, our plan with this is to actually do that work and that modernization on the inside where it counts, get those rents up and then, you know, generate eight to 10% cash and, and 20 IR for, for investors involved. So. Love it, man. That's awesome. So uh, the next thing I want to dive into, you talked about exit earlier. So you, like you say, cash calls, you got those opportunities, you got refis opportunities in, you know, two years. What are you guys trying to do at year five? Is that kind of the metric to get everybody whole or what's the thought process in, in, in the, the strategy behind that five-year mark? I think we're still debating that on almost every deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the goal of every multifamily investor, and it's sort of a unicorn goal, is to cash their investors out of the deal so that you could own the deal free and clear. There are some... I've never actually seen that successfully executed. Maybe once or twice, I've heard about this in the urban lore, but I personally have never done that. And so, yeah, that's the question. What do you do in year five? A lot of times it's just like a sale event and everybody gets their money. And then hopefully you've got another deal there ready to go where they can redeploy into that next deal and then kind of double down on their equity. Makes sense. You know, if we could do that while holding on to the asset, that's just totally gravy for us. But like I said, I've never really seen that successfully executed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally we would sell at year five and we would hit the exit price that we need, but you know, market changes, whatever, it's really hard to predict five years out. You do the best that you can, but nobody really knows. I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, right? You, You use the data that you have at the time to make an educated guess, right? So if for whatever reason you can't get out at year five, as long as you've done the work and you're able to, you know, increase the rents and at a minimum get investors made whole, then it takes a little bit of the pressure off if you can't hit those exit prices at year five, you have to extend because they're still making cash flow on money they've already been had returned to them. So if they have to wait an extra year or two before you can hit that exit, most people don't complain. But I think the key is really getting investors made whole before you get to year five. If you're just stringing them along with 8% a year and you get to year five and they've still got you know, do the math, 60% left in the deal. 
it's not going to be as good of a feeling versus, hey, you've got all your money back plus accrued pref, and we've got to hold it for an extra year. It's a much different conversation. Yeah. That's you know, good. I wanted to add this point. You know, it's the last 10 years. I mean, if you could walk and chew gum and swing a hammer, you could become a deal sponsor, right? Yeah. It's about to get real very mm-hmm. quickly here because cap rates follow interest rates. And we are in an upward trending interest rate environment right now. So a lot of people who have been doing deals for the last couple of years may come up on the short end of the stick because their assumptions at exit are getting blown up. They don't Mm. have enough. They have too low an exit cap rate programmed in their underwriting. So, you know, I know that Josh and I have talked about this a little bit. I think we're going to have a lot more conversations about this going forward, but it's about to get very real for a lot of sponsors out there where their deals don't work at five years. And so they have to have this moment where it's like, okay, what do we do? Yeah. How are we going to make our investors whole? How are we going to give them the returns we have promised? Again, you're only as good as your last deal and you don't want to come up short on this. So. No, that's good. Well, what I want to do now is I have a rapid fire questions. So I'm just going to throw them at you. Just try to answer them real quick. And the bonus and round. Yeah. Yeah. That's the bonus round. We'll just go really quick. So what's the, What's the one lesson you wish you would have known when you got in the industry that you know now? If you could go back to your to yourself or as a as a rookie in the game, what would that be? Investor relations for me. You know, this this business is all about the investors. It's not, you know, what you know, as my construction background, I thought it was about the building. It has almost little to nothing to do with it. I mean, you've got to just manage your investors and you are dealing with people's money. So and that's a very ongoing, nuanced lesson you have to learn. And we learn that every day. Love it. Josh, you want to jump that one or you want to go to I'd next? say just to sum it up, really understanding the operational aspect of multifamily. I feel it's very overlooked. Like most other people, when I jumped in the business, I was super geeked out about, you know, having my dream team and underwriting models that are perfect and, you know, raising the capital, which is, which is great. But the operational piece is the most overlooked, un, under-discussed point of it that really makes or breaks the entire model. So really having more of an emphasis on learning that earlier than I did. Okay. Next question. You guys kind of hit on this, but I'll bring it back. What's the biggest opportunity you see in the next 12 to 24 months in the real estate industry? I mean, I would say continuing <laughs> BNC. <laughs> uh, I don't really see changing any anything anytime soon. I mean, the, you know, the, the rent to just quick stat, you know, the, the rental curve to the price appreciation curve is continuing to have a gap. So you've got, you've got prices of assets going like this and rents are going like this at a very slightly less uptrend. So, so basically what that means is that to go out and buy a brand new thing, brand new asset, the rents that you're going to get with that are not going to keep up with what you're paying for that asset. So the margins are going to continue to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. So I would much rather continue to stay in B and C where I know that I can continue to force value into, into the asset versus buying something brand new like an A and then hoping that my margins hold out enough until the market continues to go up in my favor. Yep. Mark, did you want to hit that one real quick? Yeah, I, I, I think that the B and C space is still good. I think what we're going to see is the interest rates start trending up. You're going to see a lot of people shake out of the industry. They just can't with our... The thing that makes us compelling is we have this vertically integrated company where we're not only deal sponsors, but asset managers and contractors. It just gives us a huge competitive advantage over a lot of other sponsors out there. And I'm slightly, slightly, ever so slightly optimistic we're going to be able to take down deals at 
other operators can't take down. Love it. Last couple of questions. What technology are you guys using that you feel like has really set your business apart or you couldn't go without? I'll just name one quick one. So we use we have a big team, corporate staff actually, you know, a lot of moving pieces, regional directors, marketing department, accounting. And we all communicate and keep on top of our our project tasks through this this website called Trello. It's an app form too. But basically it's yep. a huge project board. You can put tasks here, you move them over when they're done. It's a great CRM type of visual that really helps us stay on top of all the moving parts every day. Love it. Mark? I use a lot of technology in my investor outreach. I have automated bots crawling around everywhere. I've been able to put together about a 20,000 name target list of trying to convert to become real investors. I mean, it's one thing to put the name in the list together. Conversion is the hard part. And so we're working on applications right now that kind of systematizes and automates the conversion process for us. So that's been, we're at the kind of one third mark with that. And it's been very successful. We're really ramping it up and hopefully going to convert a lot more here in the near future. Love it. Is there a particular bot app that you're using or you've built it? We your- wrote it. Oh, I was going to say you. I have a whole back it. office team in India that does this for me. Love it, man. Love it. Love it. So you built your own proprietary software there. All right. What are you guys doing? So as real estate entrepreneurs, there's so much around how many deals we do and how awesome we are and how much billions and billions and millions and millions. But what are you guys doing to invest back into yourself? Is there something in particular you're doing to invest in you as an entrepreneur? I, I can say for one, you know, we're a very, very process driven organization. Like they come from my engineering background. You can't, you can't really scale anything or build anything grand unless there's a process in place. And so, you know, us, I guess, pouring back on ourselves is refining every process from whether it's leasing, how you, how you greet a resident on the phone, all the way to how you deal with an investor and, and investor communications, all that stuff matters. And, and the more you can build processes around all these moving parts in your business, the the more strong and successful you're going to be. Love it. I think, you know, just growing in the business forces you to grow as a human being. And, you know, you become, we're all driven in this line of work. There's no question about it. Almost obsessively so. And, you know, as you get into it and, and get a few deals under your belt, you kind of soften your rough edges a little bit. And yeah, you, you put processes in place, but it's, you know, the human element for me that I find compelling. I mean, basically this, what we do is workforce housing and yet we're putting out the best product, I think in the marketplace right now. So there's a social mission to what we do. You know, we're trying to create a safe environment for our tenants to live in. I can't, you know, you can't do that without it having an impact on you. And there's the good and the bad sides to it. We all we all have our war stories, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're just trying to do a good, put out a good product and uh, do good work. So I, I I just keep coming back to that day in and day out. Love it, Mark. Last two questions. We have all our guests on the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast bring a book or a book suggestion to our to our audience. What's the one book that you want to suggest to our audience that has made an impact in your life, personally, professionally? What is that book? Well, I uh, can tell you, I'm actually listening to an audio book right now, and I'm almost done with it. It's really good. It's called Harder Than I Thought, Adventures of a 21st Century Leader, which I think it's a, it's been a fun book to listen to because it's, 
you know, running an organization or a company 20 years ago, completely night and day different than what it is today. No matter you're small, large, a behemoth corporation, there's just so many more, so much more you have to deal with now. Technology has been a blessing and a curse with that. So that's been very helpful for me in just navigating my position as the leader here. I'm just handling that better. I have to look at my bookshelf here. So give me a second. Current read for me is about capital raising. Actually, I've got two. Along with Josh was uh, talking about, I'm reading Satya Nadella's latest book called Hit Refresh. And Satya Nadella is the CEO of Microsoft and mm. comes at leadership from an empathic point of view. He has an autistic child, I believe. And so it really taught him to, and that's what I love about this book, is to kind of look at beyond the systems and processes and running, being a leader, but also kind of looking at it from an empathic point of view. It's kind of an interesting read. Another book I'm reading, which is more geeky, but it's Raising Capital for Real Estate, Hunter Thompson. Put a plug in from a guy. <laughs> really good book about the realities of raising capital, but how to do it very professionally. Yeah. That has transformed the way I just think about that end of the business and really raising capital, you know, getting investors is over half the business doesn't have, and it's, it's complicated. So those are my two reads right now. Love it, man. Well, I appreciate you guys. So what's the final thoughts? And then also when you do your final thought, if people want to find you, make sure you put that on there. If people want to find you, look you up, reach out, connect, talk to you about your deals, whatever it may be, put that information out there. So final thoughts and then how people can get in contact with you. Final thought for me is, uh, you know, we, we got into this particular business for a reason because, you know, I have vetted, Mark has vetted pretty much every other asset class available. And we have come to the conclusion that multifamily value-add BNC is the best risk to reward ratio that you can ever find. And so it's a reason why, you know, I also was in the hedge fund business for several years, know all about stocks, all that stuff, right? It's a reason why I'm here today doing this full time and four years later, having even looked back because it's, it's, it's the best risk reward you can find out there. And so I will, can, so that's, that's the whole reason I'm, I'm in this business. And to add to that, you know, like Mark said, you know, we're doing a really good thing here. We're, we're improving assets, workforce housing, where most of these people, the options they have are, are pretty crappy. I mean, they don't, a lot of the owners are, can operate them like slumlords. They have no pride in the property. We take the different approach where we actually want to make these places where people are proud to call home and we'll, we'll pay the money for it. And so, that's, that's what I'll say about that. And then as far as how you can reach me, I'm on LinkedIn, Josh Welch, threepillarscapitalgroup.com is our website. And thanks for having me, Terrence. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah, I can be reached at investor at S-G-R-E investments. That's plural.com. I just kind of leave with one point. You know, it's you know, just on the workforce housing thing. You know, it's, I, when I went to architecture school 40 years ago, my application essay was about affordable housing. I, 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 I firmly have always believed in it. I've always wanted to do it. I've always wanted to be a housing developer. I just find that this is the best way for me to fulfill that desire and stay true to the mission. I just have always believed that everybody is entitled to have a dignified place to have their head hit the pillow at night. And, you know, and I have bought some legitimate F-class deals that were just poorly, not just poorly. I mean, they were just slumps. These things were terrible. I mean, the roofs were holes in them, the lids are falling on the people and 
you know, to kind of kind of turn that around in under two years and 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 have it be a kind of trophy asset for me now uh, here in Seattle is one in particular I'm thinking of. It makes me feel good. I, mean, I yeah, feel like I'm, I've done a good mission, societal mission that way. So yeah, that's kind of what keeps me going in the business because a lot of headaches. I'll tell you that right now, if you didn't have something to get you out of bed in the morning, you don't want to do this business. It's a lot of brain damage. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, appreciate y'all, man. Thank y'all so much for being on the show and we'll stay in touch and we'll, hopefully we can co-GP a deal down the road. We'd love and, to. Um, let's talk yeah, about we'll, it. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to, man. So let's, let's connect about that. And man, great information. It, I feel like the audience is really going to have some tactical steps and things that they can take from this podcast and not be, you know, intimidated by the B and C property. Right. And so thank y'all so much for being on the show. Thanks for your information. If I can help you guys in any way, man, y'all just let me know. Will do. All right. Thanks, thanks Terrence. Appreciate it today. All right. I'll reach out to y'all soon, man. We'd love to drive down to Houston and have lunch and connect and just, just talk. Awesome. That's good. Love to meet you. All right. See you soon. Great job, man. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of The Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Please subscribe on whichever platform you are listening and consider leaving a five-star review as that will help us gain traction and continue to bring you knowledge in the real estate industry. For more content, head over to TerrenceMurphy.com.